Can physical activity protect you against COVID? Update on statin therapy for people without known cardiovascular disease. How can we get office workers up and moving? How often do risk factors contribute to the development of cancer? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, let's turn, of course, to the COVID material first. And this is a look at physical activity and risk of infection severity of infection and mortality with regard to COVID-19 in the BMJ. This is a systematic review, meta-analysis of data from almost 2 million adults. Obviously, ginormous data set. These folks looked at peer-reviewed articles reporting the association between regular physical activity and at least one COVID-19 outcome in adults. They found that sure enough, those people who engaged in regular physical activity did have a lower risk of infection, hospitalization, severe illness, and death related to COVID-19 compared with inactive peers. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was this was not necessarily a dose-response kind of relationship. So for those of us who are really physically active, it's kind of like, well, all right, you get a benefit, but it's not greater than people who just indulge in more moderate activity. The greatest benefit was provided by achieving at least 500 metabolic equivalents of task METs, that thing that people who study this are so fond of citing. And that's equivalent to 150 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity physical activity per week. So one more benefit of exercise. So you mentioned that the benefit really wasn't correlating with the amount of exercise. And what I'd say is it does to that particular point that you mentioned, then it kind of levels off. So doing additional exercise didn't accrue any additional benefit. We always like to ask, is there biologic plausibility to something like this? Or is it just an association? Other studies have shown that people with increased physical activity have better immune systems, better immune responses. They also are less likely to have some of the comorbidities that are associated with more severe disease, things like obesity or heart disease or lung disease. Finally, they're just in better shape and able to tolerate viral illnesses, not only this one, but other viral illnesses as well. So there's some biologic plausibility. Yeah, I think that some of this, of course, could be explained by that healthy user effect. That is that whole constellation of things that you've already cited. Something that would be of interest to me would be, what about if you adopt an exercise program? How quickly do these kinds of benefits start to kick in? That's a good point. In other words, if you develop COVID, should you suddenly start exercising? And the answer is probably not. You're not going to receive the benefit at that particular time. And one of the shortcomings of this is it's self-reported. It's just somebody saying, oh, yes, I exercised this amount of time. And it's a single point. It doesn't talk about how long people have been doing it or what kind of cardiorespiratory fitness they have. But I think you and I would agree that in general, people that are more cardiovascularly fit tolerate a number of different illnesses better and are more likely to recover and have less severe manifestations stations. So good news. Yep. And of course, points directly to our wheelhouse and our bias. Mm -hmm. Let's turn then to JAMA and let's look at this issue of we have quipped about statins in the water. What is the role of statins in people who do not have cardiovascular disease that we know about? This is an update for the United States Preventive Task Force. It's an update from 2016. They review the available data 
looking at the use of statins for primary prevention, that is people that don't have cardiovascular disease, have never had a heart attack, never had symptoms or a bypass surgery or stroke, and should statins be used in these individuals to prevent those things? That's why it's called primary prevention. And on one hand, even after the update, I'd say really things haven't changed very much. They're recommending statins in individuals between the ages of 40 to 75 with one or more cardiovascular risk factors, things like elevated cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension, or smoking, and an estimated cardiovascular risk of greater than 10%. That is, over the next 10 years, will they have a 10% or a higher likelihood that they have some cardiovascular manifestation? Those individuals should be placed on statin. You say, all right, well, how do we figure this out? It's a pool cohort estimate based upon the population at large. You plug in your information and it gives you what your risk is. Here's the unfortunate thing. It's heavily weighted towards age and gender as well. Let me draw an analysis. If you're a non-Black woman under the age of 55, less than 1% of those would fall in that category. So that means hardly any of them would be on a statin. Conversely, if you're over the age of 70 and you're a Black male, 90% of those would be on a statin. Well, what you don't want to do is you don't want to wait till the end of someone's life to start them on a statin. Let's say someone has a very high cholesterol and they're age 40. Well, you'd want to start them because the atherosclerotic process occurs over decades and you don't want to wait until it's already fully developed. So that's one of the shortcomings of this. Uh, what I'd say is even though these are good guidelines, they need to be individualized for individual patients because this looks at it at a population basis, but we need to look at each individual to decide whether they would benefit from statins or not. Right. And I also think we need to note that a lot of these guidelines that purport to assess risk have been based on men. And we also know that they're based on different ethnicities. And so there's got to be a more complete rendering of that, in my opinion, in order to inform the guidelines. Right. And again, this pool cohort estimate, this equation, tries to account for that. But studies that have validated it, they say it's really overestimates some populations, it underestimates others. And although it's a great guideline, it can be helpful, you really do have to individualize statin therapy. And again, in these individuals, they significantly reduce cardiovascular death, the risk of heart attack, and the risk of stroke. My guess is we're not done with this issue yet, because certainly when we were quipping, should we put statins in the water, there were other benefits of statins outside of their reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. Right. And one of the nice things about this particular study is based upon hundreds of thousands of patients, they looked at the safety of statins to say, well, do they cause liver disease? Not really. Do they increase the risk of diabetes? That was once rumored. Not really. Do they increase the risk of myalgias? Actually, not really in the general population. So they are very safe and at the same time, very effective. They're generic. So they're low cost. In addition to that, they're taken once daily. So a lot of benefits in individuals that could benefit from them. We'll be hearing more. Speaking of benefits, if you work in an office, how can we get you up and get you moving? This is in the BMJ. This is a look at this intervention that they call SWAL, all caps, S-W-A-L, Smart Work and Life Intervention. And then they also have SWAL plus a desk. <laughs> and that's a desk that is height adjustable so that you can get up and stand instead of sitting the whole time that you're in your office. This group has been doing this kind of work for a while. So they randomized 756 desk-based employees in offices, departments, or whatever in the UK. They were randomized to one of three conditions, the SWAL intervention, the SWAL intervention with the desk or the control, the usual practice. And they 
also support these folks with all kinds of electronic interventions to help them to remember, to get up, to do other things rather than just sit at their desk during their work day. The mean age of their participants just shy of 45 years. The majority were women. And sure enough, they found that among the SWAL group, which they had looked at this intervention before, there were 22 minutes less of sitting per day in that group. In the ones who got the desk, it was almost 64 minutes a day that they sat less compared to those folks who were just in the control group. Clearly, the SWAL plus desk is really helpful. What they did not identify in this study, and I read it really carefully, was what's it cost to provide such a desk to an office worker? And I suspect that might have something to do with the employment of this intervention. This SWAL involved a number of things, organizational strategies and involved environmental strategies and group and individual strategies using social cognitive theory, organization development theory, habit theory, self-regulation theory, relapse prevention theory, a lot of theories, and teamwork and team leaders. Here's the thing I found disappointing. And these were primarily people who had a desk job. It did decrease the amount of time they sat and it increased the amount of time they stood. It didn't increase their overall physical activity, especially outside of the work. Obviously, if you give someone a desk where you can stand and the, the goal was to get them to try to stand about two hours per day total, they'll spend more time standing, as you said, but it didn't translate into increased physical activity either at the work site, that is more steps, or outside. That was disappointing. Your thoughts? Yeah, that is disappointing that it doesn't translate and get people to think about other strategies for getting up and moving around while they're in the workplace. And I guess I would just note that societally, of course, we're seeing a great shift toward remote work. Maybe that means that people will get up more. And I would be interested in that comparison of people who work remotely versus people who work in an office, because these office cultures are really shifting quite a lot. Yeah. And then they also asked people how they felt. And the answer was there was a small difference, but it really wasn't clinically meaningful. Let's turn finally to The Lancet, another ginormous study looking at the global burden of cancer that's attributable to risk factors, many modifiable risk factors, I would note. Yeah, and that's exactly what the study did. They tried to understand the magnitude of the cancer burden that was attributable to risk factors that are potentially modifiable. This is called the Global Burden of Diseases, Injury, and Risk Factor Study, the GBD study done in 2019. It looked over a 10-year period. Here's what they discovered. The risk factors included in this analysis accounted for 4.45 million deaths and 105 million disability-adjusted life years for men and women across the globe. Unfortunately, this only represented about 44% of all cancer deaths and 42% of all dailies. What that means is there's still a lot of cancer that even when we modify risk factors, we're not going to be able to prevent. But about 45% we potentially could. And the major risk factors were smoking, followed by alcohol use and high BMI. There are other risk factors as well, environmental risk factors and other risk factors. And so it changed geographically across the globe, but overall smoking, alcohol, and high BMI. Clearly, all of those are modifiable. We also know that the burden of obesity is increasing worldwide, not just domestically. So it just seems to me like these are really critical things that need to be addressed from a multitude of strategies. There are. This is a very dense study. I think very comprehensive as well. Lots of action points here. On that note then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. 
Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.